there are other forms like uh, trauma release exercises that uh, tap into the nervous system to cause shaking, literally like just very subtle shaking. And those are used um, in war zones very often to help people to process, because this is exactly like what I was saying, like the birds and the rabbits and all those little prey animals do. They literally shake out these feelings. And so that's what somatic experiencing is about, is to say, is to dislodge and move these uh, trapped emotions, essentially. Hello, good day, greetings, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. Here at True Hope Canada, we are a mind and body-based supplement company that is dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non-invasive nutritional means. For more information about us, please visit truehopecanada.com. Today, I welcome Dr. Constance Schaaf to the podcast. Now, Dr. Schaaf has a PhD in transformative studies, specializing in radically transformative personal experience. She is a full-time author and speaker, traveling globally to help people overcome trauma and addiction. Her life's work is to help people heal from addiction and trauma, as she has done, so that each of us can live lives of meaning and purpose. Dr. Schaaf is an award-winning best-selling author. She's published three books. The most recent one is called Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. Today, we're going to be discussing addiction treatment and strategies for promoting mental health. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome, Dr. Schaaf, to True Hope Cast. I really appreciate you being with here with me, being with me and my audience here today. How are you? What is going well? I am uh, very good today. I just got back from celebrating a milestone birthday in Australia, and so I'm in a great place. Wonderful. How was Australia? I love Australia. I, I go very often, and uh, it's just super fun. My godchildren live there, and they wanted to throw a birthday party for me, so uh, I had to say yes. Yeah, I think you have to say yes when they're throwing a birthday party for you <laughs> in another continent. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, why don't you, as an introduction, just let us know who you are and what it is that you do, please. So my name is Dr. Constance Scharf. I am um, an addiction and mental health researcher. I really work at the intersection of addiction and trauma. And I specialize in collaborating with other researchers to find complementary therapies that can be used um, both in addiction treatment programs and with people in early recovery from uh, addiction and trauma and, and other mental health issues uh, to improve outcomes. I specifically look for uh, everyday sorts of activities that we can add to our lifestyle that have few or no uh, negative consequences, uh, no side effects. So um, I work with things like uh, music, storytelling and so forth to help people to change their perspectives because I really believe if you can change your perspective on your life, your life will change. So that's really um, the work that I do. I founded um, the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research a few years ago in order to um, bring that consortium of mental health researchers that is global together um, to bring resources to one another. Wow, very cool. Wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit more about addiction and kind of what that means to you obviously within with your, you know, very particular skill set? Sure. So, uh addiction really is when a behavior um and using substances is is its own behavior, right? Uh becomes so 
overwhelming that you start to have negative consequences in your life. I mean, that's so people are like, well, I'm addicted to, you know, chocolate. Well, are you really, you know, I mean, addiction really connotes that your life is going off track because um, you cannot stop a behavior or cannot stay stopped or uh if you can sort of white knuckle it for a period of time, you're pretty miserable. Interesting. And that, that difference between, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive part of your everyday conscious life. You know, you're awake and you're like thinking about this thing and it's, it's got a hold of you. What's the, like, um, I, I wonder like the, the timeline, it very might be a very difficult question to ask, but the timeline on like, the beginning processes of, of that addiction, what we call an, what we call an addiction would be kind of like not the end of someone's story for sure, but like, it's like a peak. It certainly is a, a peak. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a journey from there. Right. And there's a, a, original pieces. I just wonder, like, is there, do, do we see commonalities of individuals at that beginning stages of when it's like far off from being an addiction? Sure. We actually, we really do. So, just for transparency, I've been in uh, recovery for over 24 years. Um, and uh, I used to drink two liters or more of hard liquor a day. Um, uh, there's something, uh, it's very often said that researchers go into a field because it's me search, right? You want to know right. something personal to your own right. life. So um, what I've found, and, and certainly there are exceptions to, to, to any, you know, uh, rule, but what I found is that people who start using very young, uh, the research shows us that they're, if you start using when you're 9, 10, 11, 12 versus when you're 19, 20, 22, right, that, that the likelihood of addiction is much higher if you start using younger. And also what we find is that it helps to manage your feelings. So I had come from very extreme uh, sexual trauma from the ages of seven to 10. So extreme that I have um, uh, trauma-based amnesia for a lot of that period. I have very, very vague memories um, of kind of odd things during that period. And my, my memories are very strong up to there and then start up again when mm -hmm. the abuse ended. So what I found when I started drinking was I didn't have to feel my feelings. And it tamped down, this is why I work at the intersection of addiction and trauma, it, drinking tamped down my trauma symptoms. So I didn't have this dissociation, the body memories, the hypervigilance, and so on and so forth. I didn't have them because I was drinking to what we call the point of oblivion. I wanted to be absolutely physically and emotionally numb. And so... With that, um, when you see people who are using to change their feelings, as opposed to, I have friends who like the taste of wine. I don't know why they like it. I think it is gross. I think it's bitter and I never it never grew on me, right? Some people, you know, if you're drinking because you like the taste of wine with your meal and you're not doing it to change your emotions, odds are you are not going to become addicted. So it's really looking at how we use something. 
you know, sugar, for example, works very similarly to alcohol and very similarly to heroin inside the brain. It immediately numbs you out. So, of course, when people, you know, we don't see people who are who are massively overeating broccoli on any, you know, right, because it doesn't there's a, a beautiful book called The Biology of Desire. I forget the author's name, um, but it talks about why we become addicted to things that feel good. So sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? It, it's, it's those things that, that give us that emotional connection. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, such a huge piece. And in regards to addiction, is there always uh, an abuse or a trauma connected with it? Usually. Usually, not always, not always, but there's something called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And you can look up the research on ACEs. And it talks about all different sorts of adverse childhood experiences and the way it impacts us, not only in terms of psychological issues, addiction, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, um, anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues, but also physical health issues. And these can be anything from having a parent who is incarcerated, uh, uh, violence in the home, poverty, you know, the number one predictor of uh, many uh, mental health issues is poverty. It's so uh, it doesn't have to be trauma. That said, I know I've worked with thousands and thousands of people who suffer from addiction over the years. And I know one person who truly says, I'm anomalous. I had storybook upbringing, plenty of money, parents who loved me, no history of substance abuse or mental health disorders in my family, and I'm an alcoholic. That's it. I, I, I know one. So, you know, it, the, these things don't come out of a vacuum, right? This isn't, this isn't just like, oh, I just woke up one day and I needed to manage my feelings with drugs and alcohol or sex or gambling or food or, or whatever. Um, this, this comes out of, of some sort of need to self-medicate. You know, if we had interventions, you know, if I'd had some sort of therapeutic intervention when I was much younger, would I have become an alcoholic? I don't know. You yeah, know? It's, an, it's an interesting question, interesting question, because there are so many therapies that could be introduced, but obviously there's that, that, that pathway towards, you know, becoming an addict. And yeah, it's, it's very fascinating because you, you use the um, phrase changing feelings rather than like, the complete like numbing of feelings because I you know a lot of individuals who suffer addiction, whether that's coming from abuse or from some sort of trauma, obviously the brain is so powerful in regards to its ability to take us back emotionally to that to that time. And those thoughts and those emotions come up come up for people and it's and it's so, so much that the idea of thinking about them anymore is just way too much. Therefore like stepping towards like something like alcohol drinking to the point where you are completely changing your ability to even think or feel about that particular moment and then having to like continuously do that day in day out because you know without taking something in substance wise you're not really going to be able to change those thought patterns and change those feeling patterns and how that changes your physical and mental body it must be such a difficult place for somebody to like wake literally wake up every day into and having to like go through all of that again well it's literally a horror i mean it, it it's horrifying and you know i used to you know like i said i i drank for oblivion and and there's um 
I used to sit with my at the bar, go to the bar, and I would test myself, and I'd feel my index finger of my left hand with the fingers of my right hand, and when it felt like wood, right, that you know where I was physically and emotionally numb. That's what I was going for. Now, of course, I, by this point, I was a good alcoholic. I'm drinking two liters or more of hard liquor a day. I, you know, I, I'd keep drinking until I fell off the bar stool and, you know, or all the liquor was gone, one or the two. But that's, you know, but that's what we're going for is I don't know how to feel my feelings. And I may not have, you know, as, you know, someone who suffers from addiction, I may not have the emotional support and connections that are necessary for recovery. So for example, there were these rat studies that were done, very famous if you look up the rat studies, the addiction rat studies. And if you put a rat in a cage and you give it water that has a drug in it, doesn't matter what the drug is, but water that has a drug in it and regular water, the rat will drink the drug water until it dies. Well, another researcher was like, well, maybe the rat is picking the drug water because it's completely bored or traumatized because it doesn't have anything else to do. Mm -hmm. So he built a rat paradise and there were lots of other rats and there was plenty of food and cheese and all the things that rats like. And there were games because rats are actually very intelligent and they wanted to, you know, do all these games. And guess what? The rats didn't pick, they would taste it, right? They'd try it, but they didn't pick the drug water. Fascinating. And, and so what that taught us was very important is that the curative for addiction is not sobriety. It's not just, I don't do that anymore. It's connection. And we see this with trauma and with suicidal ideation is that when we have strong connections and can recognize them and really have supportive healthy or relatively healthy people in our lives, then the need to act out diminishes. So let me give you another example with suicidal ideation. There's two different kinds of, of suicide. One is I have a horrible physical illness. I'm dying of cancer or something. And I want to put an end to my life at a certain point. Self-euthanasia. That's something different. So let's just set that aside. Sure. Then there are the people who are like, M you, the people that I love, would be better off if I wasn't here. That's the narrative that lets us off the hook to kill ourselves. Well, that's not true. And so if we can build that connection so that I know that my death will hurt you, in a devastating way. That's the kind of connection that makes me want to seek treatment. What, how does conventional, does conventional medicine do a good job with addiction? Has it evolved? Is it changing like, or is it just? Well, it's changing stuck? and it's better, but it's horrible. So a lot of the therapeutics that we know work, and I wrote a best-selling book about this in, in 2012 ending addiction for good about, I worked at, a, at an addiction treatment facility. I was a director of addiction research and the senior addiction research fellow at this very famous facility in uh, Malibu, California. And we had a treatment protocol that had near hundred percent success rate at one year. So at one year, which is where we stopped tracking at one year, 
people were still abstinent from drugs and alcohol. And if they weren't and hadn't uh, left without, you know, against medical advice, if we, if they had left when we discharged them, we brought them back to treatment for free. Okay. Right. I mean, we put our money where our mouth was. And what we did is we published a book with this treatment protocol to give it to everyone. We did not want that to be proprietary so that because of the treatment center, I'll be honest, was very expensive. At that time, it did not take insurance. And uh, we said, hey, everybody needs to know this information. And the information is this, is that there are complementary therapies that when used in conjunction with psychotherapy and uh, mutual aid groups like 12-step programs radically improve treatment outcomes. Most of these are not uh, billable to insurance. The way that treatment centers that use some of them bill them to insurance is to bundle them. So you get, they, you know, there's certain things you have to do in a day. You have to eat lunch and you have transition between groups and whatever. So they'll pay for a certain number of sessions. But a lot of this stuff is just not billable to insurance. Somatic experiencing, which has been absolutely transformative, not only for myself, but for other people that I work with with trauma, um, by and large, not billable to insurance. And so if you have money, you can get access to it. And if you don't, then you're out of luck. Mm -hmm. And so... I think we still have a tremendous stigma that there is this, that there is a moral depravity among people who suffer from addiction. And that if we just tried harder or cared about you more, then we'd stop. And that really isn't the case. The brain is actually physically and biochemically co-opted by addiction, you get a feedback loop. So one of the things about addiction is you're not just um, using drugs and alcohol. Let's use, let's use uh, chemical dependency. You're not using, just use, you're thinking about it all the time. That builds what fires together, wires together, that builds new neural pathways so that you have this feedback loop that all you're thinking about is using. So if you invite me to your wedding and you're like, but, but doc, I don't want you to, I don't want you to use. Well, that's not a fair ask. You know, I may or may not show up. I may or may not show up high. I may or may not cause a scene. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the mental processes that I have to use. I had a cousin who was a heroin addict and her mother wanted her to be at her wedding. And so they invited her and uh, God bless her. She tried really hard to, you know, be appropriate at the wedding. And at one point uh, during the service, she went on the nod, right? Started to fall asleep, leaned forward sleepily. And one of her breasts fell out of her dress. Not the best thing at your mom's wedding, right? And so her uncle, who was sitting next to her, pushed her back in her chair, popped her, you know, boob back in her dress, and everybody continued on with the service. She wasn't meaning to be a jerk. She wasn't meaning to. She's a heroin addict, and she had to. She had to be high. She just physically had to be high. And her mother's very grateful because of that she was at the wedding. Because a few years later, she died. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's so unbelievably complex and, you know, as a um, society, when we're talking about trauma or addiction or something like that, we like to come up with very simple ideas or solutions or like, just like, why don't you just stop 
doing what you're doing and then you'll be happier right like it's it's obviously not as simple as that especially when we're talking about the neurochemistry and you know when you even start thinking about something whether it's you using a drug or like wanting to do something different your brain is going to start creating matter and you know start creating those neural pathways to to strengthen that thought process right it does and and, and let me put it to you in these terms if the drug was the problem when we remove you from the drug which is detox right when we separate you from the drug you should get better right if you get bit by a snake a venomous snake and we give you anti-venom you immediately start to improve yeah. right assuming that you you're fingers aren't already necrotic and all that kind of stuff, right? You immediately start to get better. If uh, you uh, have an anaphylactic shock and we give you, you know, shoot you up with an EpiPen, you immediately start to get better. But with people who have substance abuse, when we separate you from your, from whatever drugs and alcohol you've been using, you get worse, much worse mentally, physically, everything is terrible. Can you That's, take us through the like the biochemistry of why that happens? Well, yeah, let me just finish with this. So we Sorry, know yeah. That, yeah, yeah. So we know that it's not just the drug that is the problem. That's because you should, if we separated you from the drug, you should immediately get better. So it's not just the drug, it's a neurological process. It's it's a it's a psychological process as well. So so for, in answer to your question, like what's happening? <coughs> excuse me. Essentially, drug addicts are, are chemists. And even if you're a sex addict or gambling addiction, your brain produces chemicals on its own. So every time you gamble, for example, you get that high. That's why people like to gamble, right? I don't understand that. Because when I put a, a dollar down on the table for, you know, at, at a, you know, at a, a card game, right? And then 32 seconds later, I've lost and they pulled the dollar away. I was like, I'm sorry, where I wanted a dollar's worth of goods and services. Right. And, and, and this is not fun, right? And when I win, I'm like, oh, that's nice. So I just went to the to the uh, horse races in, in Australia and I go in right that I'm going to put a, a $5 bet on three of the races or whatever. And, and it's like buying a concert ticket to me, right. you know, um, it's just the cost of the day. And if I lose all the money, it's fine. Same as if I went to a concert and, and it's I'm paying for the experience and I happened to win on one of the things. And I won uh, $300 on a $10 bet. And I was like, oh, wow, that's nice. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't get that chemical response right. in the same way that some people, when they drink, they're like, oh, I'm starting to feel this. I don't like the way I feel. I'm going to, I'm going to stop. And my response is, oh, what the hell's wrong with it? Like, that's the point. Right. So, so we, our brains produce these chemicals and some people it produces them in high amounts and some people it doesn't. But when we're taking substances, I've gotten my brain to shut off what it does naturally to self-produce these chemicals. And I'm telling it, okay, we're going to, I want to feel good. I'm going to take cocaine. I want to feel nothing. I'm going to take heroin. I want to feel, you know, uh, 
spacey, I'm going to take whatever, you know, I'm telling myself how I'm going to feel and I'm doing the chemistry. So when you take those chemicals out, your brain's not producing those neurochemicals. So for, so another example, so when you work with music, with people in very, very early recovery, both from addiction and trauma, the brain is not producing serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine, the feel-good chemicals, in appropriate amounts. But if you sing or play instruments, but particularly, let's just stick to singing. If you sing, your entire brain lights up and starts to create these chemicals. You know this is true because if you've ever had a bad day and you uh, were sitting in traffic and a song you like came on, came on the radio and you start singing to it, what happens? Everything changes. You feel better. Yeah. Right? You feel better. You do your own carpool karaoke, sing like no one can hear you because you don't care. You feel better. That's actually a biochemical response. Your brain is producing serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. Now, imagine you are in early recovery from uh, addiction or trauma, and your brain is not producing those in normal amounts. So you're, you know, we're it, when we're in the car, we're moving from here to here, and we're like, wow, I feel a little better. If you're in drug treatment, you're way, you know, you're in the basement, and then all of a sudden you get a dump of these feel-good chemicals. We've now given you a natural high. What do we see happens after that? You uh, will want to stay in treatment longer. You'll be more engaged in treatment. You know, we've had, um, you know, people who are like, I'm a heroin addict. I'm just, I'm going to die. And they're, you know, that, that listen, before you come into treatment, that is the likelihood, right? That's where that path goes. And then they come out and they're like, you know, after singing a song and shaking a shaker, uh, they feel so much better. And so we get better treatment outcomes. We also, when we sing, we, especially if we write our own lyrics, we unearth issues that maybe we can't talk about. So people with trauma, for example, will have the inability to speak about the trauma that they went through. So it was, I was in therapy for two years before I could say the word incest. I would literally sit in front of my therapist. uh, uh, The word would not come out. Right. So how was the seven-year-old who I'm old enough that, you know, we didn't have that. Don't have, you know, tell somebody if someone's touching you where your bathing suit goes. Like we didn't have that back when I was growing up. So I didn't have, not only did I not have the language to share what was going on with someone, I did not have the ability that was shut down. I literally had lost my voice when it came to that. So singing allows us to uh, move through that by dumping, changing the neurochemistry in our brain, at least for a few hours. That's wonderful. So it's almost like the, the process of the therapies you're talking about within, you know, within the research program and the, 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 the protocol that you put together you're trying to help people literally like rewire their brains into a different way and kind of wake, wake, wake up endogenous pathways um, to create, basically just wake the brain up, I suppose, to kind of get back it to its normal state. But also with the process of, you know, singing and writing things down, um, like there's certainly a self-therapeutic process going through there because so much of that experience has just been completely undigested sitting there in a you know sitting there in somebody's psyche coming out as behaviors and thoughts and then you're trying to help them 
kind of get through that very deep, dark situation? So there's two things. Number one, it's not sitting in your psyche. It's sitting in your body. Okay. So there's a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score by Vanderkolk. And there's been research by Vanderkolk, Dr. Perry, and several others. Um, uh, Dr. Perry recently wrote a book with Oprah. Um, it's basically Oprah interviewing him. What happened to you? Um, and in this research, it says that, that literally traumas are, are kept in the body in, uh, traditional methods of healing, shamanic, um, healing methods, indigenous healing methods that are observational. You'll see that, uh, traditional healers will talk about shaking medicine because, Animals don't hold trauma the way human beings do. Other animals don't. So if a bird is attacked by a predator and gets away, doesn't hold that trauma. It goes under a bush, a rock, whatever, fluffs up its feathers and shakes and moves that through. Mm -hmm. So trauma release exercises, for example, are shaking exercises to dislodge and move these trapped energies, essentially through the body. So the first thing is that it stays in these things, stay trapped in the body the, until they're processed. The other part is that whatever you believe is true is true. So I don't know about truths with a capital T, like what's the nature of the universe and how did we get here? And I, I don't know, but I do know in terms of creating change processes for people. If you believe that you can recover, you got a good shot. If you believe that you're hopeless, you are hopeless, right? Um, a family member of mine was recently diagnosed with cancer and uh, very aggressive. And I, I was talking to an oncologist friend of mine about it. And I said, you know, this family member is very, uh, very optimistic. And the oncologist was like, good. That's the one person you need to be optimistic is the yeah. patient because we've, if he's not optimistic, we've lost him already. And I was like, good. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's true. So I, for example, when I overheard my father, who was the one who abused me saying one day, I don't like to have sex with fat women. He was talking to someone and I was like, well, this is very good information then I should become very, very fat and then I will be safe. So my worldview was I need to be very, very heavy. And I really, in that child's mind, wanted to become such an immovable mound of flesh that, you know, no one could touch me nor would want to. Okay. Right. So that I would have agency over my own body. Right. That was that was the goal. And so at one point I was up to 325 pounds and pulled pulled a muscle, you know, trying to wipe my own backside. I mean, we're getting a little too when we my personal definition for myself of too large is when you can't wipe your own bum. Okay. Right. I that's for me. That's my definition of we need to do something about this. Well, and I couldn't because I had this belief that the only reason I was safe and not assaulted was because I was big. Well, someone said to me once, right when I started the somatic experiencing, someone said to me, a friend said, that's not true. And it hit me. It's not true. 
heavy women get assaulted. I was getting, you know, I'm very, because I was groomed a certain way, I can be blind to predators. So predators would approach me, whether I was big, whether I was small, it didn't, they didn't care. Immediately I dropped 75 pounds. I've kept it off for almost five years now. And I did nothing different. I did not change my eating. I did not change my exercise. I did I simply had a different truth. And the truth was, uh, whatever size you are has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to be assaulted. I'm actually much less likely to be assaulted at a smaller size because I'm stronger and quicker and I'm going to, you know, cut your throat. Right. You know, I'm not so, I'm not quite so big and helpless. So when we can change those stories, and I call them little T truths. And they just have to be true enough that we can pivot. I have no idea what the exact statistics are on, on sexual assault and size. I don't, who knows, but I do know that uh, understanding here that I don't have to be a mountain of flesh changed my life. And if we can get people to have those little T truth changes, everything will change. Remarkable. And there are different techniques in regards to, is that something as, as a therapist that you're attempting to, to help people discover? So I'm, I want to be real clear. I'm not a therapist. I'm a researcher. I okay. work with therapists and I train therapists in um, using these techniques. So I don't work with clients directly, um, except as a peer, right? One trauma survivor, one, you know, recovered alcoholic to someone else who's going through that. Right. But there are wonderful, wonderful resources. You know, I love um, The Artist's Way. And in that book, she talks about morning pages and just writing out, you know, three pages, just stream of consciousness, first thing in the morning, here we go, blah, 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 blah. And it clears all the garbage. It clears all the garbage. Um, in 12-step programs, prayer and meditation are highly encouraged. Now, what I found is people with significant trauma can't meditate because the second you close your eyes or go to that quiet space, all the, you know, uh, stuff comes up. And that's because we're in a hypervigilant state. See, the, the, what trauma really is, I, I, there's lots of textbook definitions that I could give you, but trauma to me is really when the past intrudes on the present. It feels like when I'm in a traumatized state, it feels like there is a clear and present danger of my father assaulting me. I feel like I literally could used to be able to feel him breathing on my neck. My father's been dead for, I don't know, 26, 27 years. He is not breathing on my neck. He is not here. He is not a danger. No one else is here. I am safe. Mm -hmm. But trauma makes it feel as if the danger is present. So if we, so what do we do then to make, if meditation has such great, great outcomes, what do we do to help people be able to participate in that activity? So those are the things that I work with, with people, by the way, you do a somatic experiencing to move the trauma through. Mm -hmm. So then 
you can be comfortable closing your eyes or, or, you know, having someone, you know, I used to uh, go to a, a 12 step meeting and, and there were no seats saved, but I came from very far away. And so they saved a seat for me and they saved the seat behind me because the, sh- the, the chairs were in a horseshoe and I couldn't stand to not have my back against the wall. And so they put someone, there were only two men that would sit in that seat behind me, but they put one of those two men in the seat behind me so that I could stay in the meeting. Interesting. You know, or I had anxiety. See, these are the kind of things that anybody can do. This is what connection is too, right? My my friends, my peers saw that I was losing my mind with anxiety having someone not that I didn't know sit behind me. And they're like, well, that's an easy fix for us. We can accommodate that. I used to do a fancy stitch needlepoint because I, if I did something with my hands in these meetings, it grounded me and I could be present and not thinking about who's sitting behind me, who's over there, what's the thing, you know, staring at the door, you know? And it was interesting to me because I was that, particular group had a lot of veterans. It was near the VA hospital, the Veterans Administration Hospital in Los Angeles. And the vets would come over for that meeting. And they were all asking, but what, what's this needlepoint? How, how can I do, can I do that? Like, you know, share this because we bonded over having similar trauma experiences. The, the details of it weren't the same, but the experience of, of post-traumatic stress was very similar. And so these are the kinds of things that we can do to improve our treatment outcomes, right? Because I did needlepoint, because my friends sat behind me, I was able to then participate in in the 12-step group and get the results of that. Such seemingly subtle things that you can do to, you know, help put your your brain and your body in a situation that, you know, um, would be congruent to to that healing process. Can you tell me a little bit more about the somatic experiences that you were talking about? Like, can, can you take, take me through, through a couple of examples perhaps? Sure. So somatic experiencing, and there are different groups or, uh, uh, radical aliveness is what I've done. And, and I just based out of Los Angeles and I just am crazy about it, but there are other different kinds of things. The, premise is is that you have emotion trapped in the body you have these experiences that are trapped in the body which is what aces really is based on in the sense of you know how is it that um people who you know have experienced you know multiple adverse experiences in early life poverty incarcerated parents drug abuse you know whatever it happens to be have physical ailments it's because the the body doesn't have a way to process that. So if we process it, so that's really about, first of all, identifying how your body feels. So I probably spent personally, I don't know, months where if you ask me like what's happening from, you know, the neck down, like, you know, or identify that emotion. I, you're going to have to help me with that, you know, because I didn't know. I could tell you I was feeling something, but what was it? 
you know, and so learning that is a very particular process. Then there are other, um, there are other forms like uh, trauma release exercises that uh, tap into the nervous system to cause shaking, literally like just very subtle shaking. And those are used um, in war zones very often to help people to process, because this is exactly like what I was saying, like the birds and the rabbits and all those little prey animals do. They literally shake out these feelings. And so that's what somatic experiencing is about, is to say, is to dislodge and move these uh, trapped emotions, essentially out of the body. It's not, so one of the things we've learned with trauma survivors is that traditional talk therapy is not very helpful. Not enough. It, I can tell you what happened, you know, this happened and that happened and blah, 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 blah. but I have no connection to the emotion of it. There's no processing that goes on. And I'm so deadpan when I, you know, used to talk about these. I had 20 years of very high end, very, you know, traditional talk therapy and, 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 you know, they tried, um, but the, the therapist would cry and I would dissociate because I couldn't feel those emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd feel like I was up here sort of looking at, eh, I'd come back, you know, tomorrow or something. And I'd still be talking, but I, you know, the next day I couldn't tell you what happened. I don't know. I, 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 you know, so it's really about getting those feelings out, not discussing the experience. And that's what somatics does. Wonderful. And is there, there's a whole body of literature on this these these somatic experiences and how that they're, they're supporting right. people. So too. I would stop. I would start with the body keeps the score. Okay. I would start with the body keeps the score because he really explains what's happening. And then I would look into, you know, trauma release exercises, radical aliveness and so forth. Um, and you can, you can look these up and see what's available near you. The challenge, at least here in the United States is that, uh, most of this is not covered by insurance. Yeah. Which is a really, really big challenge for probably the majority of people with, with addiction issues, which is, yeah, that's a, that's a big concern. Are there any, I mean, does your research stem to other countries and what they're doing to try and support the, you know, the majority of people within their, within their um, populations? Sure. So I, you know, work with a consortium of people internationally. I've uh, traveled all over the world working with different researchers and uh, the (laughs) other countries do a lot better job. I mean, 2002, uh, Portugal decriminalized, uh, uh, possession of, of substances and instead of sending you to jail, which in the US we still send you to jail for, for different things. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean there I don't know the big news here in the United States is there's talk about uh uh pardons for federal um people who are in jail for federal uh, marijuana offenses, right? Possession possession, right? Because now it's legal in so many states. So you know um there there's this big criminalization but Portugal understood that addiction is a treatable disorder and that people need help, not jail. And they put the money into treatment rather than into incarceration. 
and they've had tremendously positive positive results and everyone's like oh look portugal that's nice you know um in the united states we have drug courts and drug courts by far have better outcomes than just throwing people away in the clink and hoping that they you know do better what's a drug court a drug court is uh if you um have some sort of drug possession right we're not talking about you know major drug cartels who are bringing in millions of dollars of fentanyl that's sure. something different but someone who's you know a drug addict and you go to a drug court and they give you instead of incarceration you go into a treatment program some of them are residential and some of them are not and you have updates and they're usually a year sometimes a little more um it's a little bit more like probation you know and you have to do certain things as a condition of probation right so you have to do certain things whether that's you know go to a residential treatment facility or go to a, a sober living or participate in a 12-step whatever they decide there's very often, you know, job placement and skill building and other things that go in with that too. So we know that those kinds of activities work, but we also have a highly privatized prison system here and there's incentive for people to get put in jail, you know? So it, it's difficult. I was in uh, Ljubljana, Slovenia um, and giving a presentation and I was uh, invited to speak to at a drug treatment facility. I had met some Slovenian researchers in Brazil. And so when I went to Slovenia, they said, come to our facility and talk to our um, patients. And I was impressed. First of all, almost everyone spoke English and probably three or four other language in addition to their, their native tongue. But there was a woman there and she said, well, how long do people get to stay in treatment in the United States? And I said, well, we try to keep them in for in residential treatment for 28 to 30 days, but most are getting kicked out about between seven and 17 days now. They go into outpatient and then they have to, quote unquote, fail out of outpatient, which is very often a relapse in order to get back into residential. And we know, researchers will tell you, we've known for over 40, almost 50 years, that longer-term treatment, residential, then step down to outpatient, you know, then step down to sober, for the course of a year is mm -hmm. really ideal. Um, and she was horrified. Now, the treatment facility that I worked at, we kept people for 90 to 120 days, again, because they were self-paying, we weren't insurance dependent. But she was horrified. And I, I, I said, I'm, I'm interested. Why are, you, why are you so upset? And she said, because we stay here until the doctor says that we're ready to step down our level of care and, and wow. go into a different kind. And I was like, well, yeah. Ideally, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'd like too, you know. So there are some, there are some countries that are looking at this um, in a very, very different light in regards to what other options are out there for people and looking to change the, the process. And obviously we, there's, there's issues in the North America in regards to, you know, drug companies and, you know, the allocation of resources to these types of things. And even just like taking the time to actually look at what's the current research in regards to addiction and having, having conversations with people like yourself, it's probably not a high priority for, you know, certain governments, but you know, Portugal, 
Slovenia talking about there, like these are these are nations that are obviously seen a problem within their populations and have asked just simply ask the question like what what can we do and you know if, if one thing didn't work they can try something different and you know putting researchers on the case so it's yeah it's quite remarkable that we do have you can you can put aside addiction and trauma even medicine that there are so many wonderful um countries doing wonderful things in different areas and, and it's almost just like countries don't um want to know about better solutions for their people it's quite wild well, it's, it, it really is, to me, it's a choice. So one of the countries really out at the forefront, um, two countries out at the forefront of, of trauma um, are uh, Australia and New Zealand, you know, and although peace and reconciliation uh, coming out of, uh, Af out of the African continent certainly is, is, is something to look at too. But um, Australia like I said, I just came back from there. One of the things that they do is they bring in very consciously Aboriginal Pacific Islander indigenous ways of knowing because the worldview mm -hmm. of different cultures is different, right? We're seeing that in, in Iran right now. The people are saying, no, 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 you don't get to tell me, right? That I have to wear my hair, you know, a certain kind of scarf on my hair. So, the indigenous or Aboriginal views of well-being and what makes someone well or, you know, mentally ill, which is not a term that they would use, is different. And so they bring in those ways of knowing, knowing to bring in community connections, right? So I was in Namibia in Southern Africa working with a traditional, a group of traditional healers and they will sing and dance and help a person to be more connected in their community. So they don't have the desire to act out. And if they need help with someone, then people help them. Right. And so those, you know, in, in India, someone who has what we would diagnose as schizophrenia is considered it, it by Hindus to be touched by God or the gods, and is people come to them wanting, you know, because they have a different perception. They don't see that as a mental illness. They see someone who's just living their own reality. I have a, a friend who uh, had late onset schizophrenia and is Kenyan, and he literally wanders around northern Kenya in his own world People make sure he has food. People make sure that he's taken care of. People make sure that anything he needs, he has. He goes into people that he trusts when he wants to, leaves when he wants to. And the interesting thing is the animals, the wild animals don't eat him. <laughs> this has been going on for uh, 25 years now. He does not get eaten by lions or hyenas or what. Everybody just leaves him alone. So in our worldview, we'd put him in an institution for the and put him on Thorazine and just you know till he's drooling on himself, yeah. Or he's having the life that he's having that he actually is pretty happy with. Yeah, we would go straight to isolation and even isolating that own individual's mind through pharmaceuticals. So very very different approaches. How how do you go to explaining the fact that how powerful community and reconnection with other humans and even animals and the environment, I suppose, is when it comes to um, he, healing from addiction or from trauma? 
so we have, and I say this as a community, not as, you know, you and I, we in the West have a very disconnected, individualized perception of how the world is and how the world works. And I love that you brought the environment into it because I'm actually transitioning in my work a lot more into how do we reconnect with the environment, not only for our own mental well-being, but also to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, which you know we're seeing all over the world. This huge hurricane that hit the United States recently, that the lake that's just sprung up and displaced you know, something similar to 90% of the population of Canada, you know, about 30 million people in Pakistan. Like nobody, you know, oh, well, there's just a new lake in Pakistan that's the size of Britain. Excuse me? Like, are we not concerned? (laughs) You know? (laughs) But no, but we're not. But we're not. And so it really is, I am probably for the first time ever hopeful because I really like Gen Z's again, as a group, because what I'm hearing, and we're at the very beginning of the research, and we, you know, the thing about research is you don't know until after it's over, and then you get to look back and, you know, see what happened. But I'm very hopeful because Gen Z seem to be seeing the world in a different way and saying this hyper-individualized, capitalistic, ever-expanding economy point of view is a false narrative. It just doesn't work. I mean, what, the three richest guys in the world keep shooting themselves up into space, you know, and uh, and, and Jackson, Mississippi and Flint, Michigan don't have drinkable, potable water. You know, like, what, what, what are our priorities? And so, but there's this different idea of community and connection that is starting to grow up. And that, to me, is the the hope for the future. Whether it's mental health, you know, climate change, uh, 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 societies in which you know we are connected and ha- what whatever, because yeah. we have plenty of resources. The problem is not lack of resources. You know, they say they, they say there well, there's no workers like in the United States right now. There's a labor shortage. There's no labor shortage. If you if you apply for a job that pays six figures or better, you're going to be in there with with a hundred other people applying for the same job. There's a shortage of people who want to be mistreated. Certainly, yeah, complex, complex stuff, and it's it's very interesting to recognize the disconnect that we do have as individuals, whether we are going through addiction or not, and how simplicity and reconnecting with things like nature and yourself and your body can be some of the like the simplest ways for you to have like a, a huge impact on not just your your life but the people around you and, and you know ultimately the world everything's connected so it's super super fascinating that that you you bring that whole topic up just kind of final question has the research in regards to like the the, the pandemic in the last couple of years in regards to like addiction and the trauma of all of, all of that has anything really been done in regards to looking at any kind of like interesting patterns in how let's say this like global crisis has, has affected like populations and people? No, because we're still in it. I mean, people want to say that the, that the, you know, pandemic's over and it's not. 
Um, and, you know, we've, we're having, we have a polio outbreak in New York state. We have, you know, global monkeypox, which I think we're getting ahead of. Um, we have a, a, a new sort of, uh, 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 COVID type, uh, virus that seems that's, uh, come up and seems to be, uh, resistant to vaccination. Um, although that's not, you know, widely, uh, uh, it's not widely in circulation. That, that virus isn't isn't passing around um, at present. So you know, so we're keeping our eye on you know certain things. You know, there's a new Ebola outbreak. I mean, we're just we got problems. Um, so I don't want to say that it's over. I think that what we're seeing socially, and this is a global issue, is a pushback against going back to pre-COVID conditions. People are saying no. Whether that's a pushback to going to the office, whether that's a pushback to, um, you know, uh, the way our our medical situation is, there, there's, there's a, a pushback. And you're seeing the old system fighting the new system. So there are very conservative groups, conservative being right status quo and, 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 and so forth, or even neo-fascist groups, as we just saw in Italy, that are like, no, 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 we want it to be the way it was. And then you see these younger people primarily saying, no, we're going to have something different. So I think, you know, again, we're not out far enough that we can see what it's going to look like. But I think we're going to see this as a watershed moment. I don't know which way it's going to go. You know, it could clamp down. I mean, in the United States, it's going very conservative at the moment. And maybe that'll change and maybe that won't. In other places, it's going in a very different direction. And so we just have to, we just have to see, but we did see during the pandemic, a rise in trauma, a rise in um, addiction, a rise in uh, relapses, a rise in overdoses, huge amount of overdoses, over a hundred thousand in the United States in one year alone during the pandemic. So we have an opportunity here. That's what I want to, you know, focus on. We have an opportunity here as we're coming you know, through the pandemic to change the way we are together in community. And frankly, what we fund, what we value is what we fund. And right now here, it's not mental health. That's not what we're funding. It's not potable water. It's, you know, other things. And so that's what we have to look at in, in each of our communities is what is it that we're going to put our efforts and our connection and our values in and and that's where the money would flow awesome well said thank you um how can people connect with you so uh i am on all the social medias right TikTok, instagram facebook linkedin twitter at dr sharf uh, I also have a website, constantsharf.com, and I have a um, column on psychology today online, and you can check me out any of those places. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I'll make sure that all those links to connect with you 
are in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, that is it for this episode of True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. I'll put the links to connect in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. That's it for this week. We will see you next week.